0: New York City is chock full of history. You literally can even find it tucked away in cracks and crevices. Enter the Tenement Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Historians amassed a diverse collection of historic trash in the making of the museum. They found everything from old perfume bottles to doll heads to tins of aspirin as they work to convert two historic tenement buildings into a place to tell the story of immigrant life in the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm George Bodarkey, and this is Cityscape. On today's show, a look inside the Tenement Museum's archive of antique garbage and
1: castoffs.
2: My name is Danielle Swanson. I'm the collections manager at the Tenement Museum.
1: I'm Dave Favaloro. I'm the director of Curatorial Affairs at the
0: Tenement Museum. So Dave, let's start with you. For those not familiar with the Tenement mm-hmm. Museum, give us the background.
1: Uh, well, the Tenement Museum, um, now 30 years old, right? celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, is a museum that's dedicated to the history of the immigrant and migrant experience, um, particularly here on the Lower East Side in New York City, what some would argue is its most kind of iconic, hard uh, right. When you think about immigration, um, you associate New York City with that historic experience, and I think any of any neighborhood in New York City historically, right, the Lower East Side is is um, I think for many people associated with with that experience. So you know we explore the stories of immigrants and migrants on the Lower East Side and in New York City through the stories of um, former residents, landlords, and shopkeepers who lived in or worked in or owned um, the two historic buildings that we today interpret as a museum. And they represent different immigrant populations. Right, yeah, essentially, right, these individuals are lenses onto a much broader um, experience. They're representative of um, different immigrant groups who arrived here in New York and on the Lower East Side from the middle of the 19th century, the 1860s, right up until um, the, the recent past, say the 1980s and 1990s.
0: Are the tenement apartments that you have here recreations? Any preserved intact from when the last tenants
1: left? So we have both. Uh, we have apartments that have been left in the condition that the museum's founders Discovered them in in 1988 after, for example, 97 Orchard Street, one of the buildings we today interpret as a museum, was condemned in 1935. All of the residents evicted, and no one lived there for that intervening 73 years. Some of those spaces, after architectural conservation and stabilization, they've been left in that unrestored condition, what we'll sometimes describe as a state of architectural ruin. But we've also restored a number of the other spaces, uh, apartments, to depict different moments in the life of the building's history and we use those to tell the stories of actual immigrant or migrant families who call them home uh, between 1863 and 1935 in the case of 97 Orchard Street and in the case of 103 Orchard Street between 1945 and again the more recent past say the 1990s for example. Danielle why is it important
0: to tell this history?
2: Um, I think it's important because we are sharing kind of a lens on the la- the larger american experience um and especially with the the buildings themselves we can kind of show their day-to-day lives and and maybe kind of na- knock down some different perceptions about what that might have been um and so kind of in my role here i'm kind of preserving that kind of physical history of of them
0: dave what
1: is an example of one of the stories that you tell here folks always ask you know, me and other museum staff what our favorite is. So, you know, I don't necessarily have a favorite per se, but, um, you know, I'm often fond of telling the story of the Baldese family. They were Italian Catholic immigrants from Palermo, Sicily to be even more specific, who lived in 97 Orchard Street from 1928 and 1935. Uh, so they were one of the families who were evicted when the building was condemned in that year. But I think their experience is enormously interesting because part of the museum's, uh, mission, part of our uh, interpretive approach, part of our sort of foundational um, kind of idea, right, is that this is not just a place where um, individuals, Americans, and international visitors can come and learn about the historic immigrant experience, but that these stories about immigrants in the past or migrants in the past can be used as a sort of foundation or a springboard for engaging visitors in a conversation about um, the relationship between immigration or migration past and what that looks like today. So what are the contemporary echoes of some of the things that we're uh, exploring in some of these, these various stories that we've um, uncovered through research, uh, that we've sort of preserved in their physical form, and that we've um, created sort of immersive spaces in which to tell them, to kind of give you a, uh, an example, right? I, love, um, I think it's really useful to tell in that sense, to tell the story of the Baldizi family and their experience coming here to the United States, Uh, We know both through the documentary record and through extensive oral history interviews done with one of their children, their daughter, Josephine, these were done in the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s, that um, her mother came to join her father, who was already here in New York um, getting set up, getting a job, getting an apartment. Uh, she came in 1925 as what we today would call an illegal or an undocumented immigrant. And we very purposefully use that kind of presentist language uh, as a way to hopefully uh, spark sort of organic conversations about um, you know, what that looks like both in the past and looks like in, in the present in terms of contemporary conversations about immigration and its role in American life. Danielle, tell me more about the work that you
0: do here to preserve this history.
2: It's kind of it's a larger and smaller experience. So, in general, we are preserving our buildings, 97 Orchard Street, chiefly. Um, so, we do a lot of work of maintaining the structure because um, while we say that um, over its span as an um, occupied apartment building, we um, have said about 7,000 people have lived there. We now see kind of a lot more people um, in our daily visitors. So it's kind of a balance between kind of presenting the space to the public and and preserving it for the future. So there's a lot of work that goes into that. But then also we have um, a permanent collection, which most people might not know about. And that's a lot of um, these objects that we found within the building, whether large or small. So large being like the soapstone tubs or little chairs left behind when the building was evicted but um, through these preservation projects we've really been able to find a lot of kind of remnants of daily life whether that be um, seeds nuts foods that kind of have fallen through the floorboards or even small games like dice um, and jacks or hairpins that kind of really echo back to these people living in these apartments and, and kind of make, beginning their American life here.
0: And that brings us to where we are at this moment. Where are we?
2: Uh, We are in one of the museum's collection storage spaces. Um, It's actually in a satellite office uh, space that the museum occupies. Um, But uh, we are kind of surrounded by some cabinetry and racks that house most of this permanent collection that is not able to be on view to daily visitors.
0: So what are in these cabinets?
2: Um, It's kind of, again, what I mentioned before. So we have a lot of um, samples of these layers of wallpaper um, that we've taken from the building, kind of showing these records of families moving in and out. Again, um, those things like, again, nuts, seeds, wood fragments, um, sometimes often uh, uh, cans or bottles left behind, um, clothing items, all types of different kind of Aspects of day-to-day life, and then this also includes some things that have been donated to us by family members. Um, we're very lucky that, um, for instance, some descendants of the Rogorshevsky family um, were able to donate um, things like Fanny Rogershevsky's toolbox and tools that she used as a long-time kind of um, super, as you would say in today's terms of the building.
0: When did that family live here?
2: Um. Dave might know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they lived at 97 Orchard Street roughly uh, from about 1910. uh, Beyond 1935, in fact, right, they were one of the families, uh, in, in fact, the only family who wasn't evicted in 1935? Because, as Danielle just said, Fanny Rubashevsky served as the building super superintendent, and so uh, they were here until about 1941. Uh, and Fanny and the remaining family members moved from 97 Orchard Street into the newly built Vladek houses, which is one of the sort of early public housing projects built here on the Lower East Side. And where was that family from? They were from a city called in what is today Lithuania, then would have been part of the Russian Empire, but they were like many of the tenants at 97 Orchard Street in the kind of very late 19th and early 20th century, say around the turn of the century 1900. Um, most of those folks hailed from Eastern Europe and they were, they were Jewish, right? So they were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi Jews. So were you on the hunt for these types of objects or did they just present themselves?
2: They presented themselves, I would say. So I think in the early years of the museum's history, kind of um, just kind of discovering the building, a lot of like the larger, even just door frames or cabinets um, that were part of the building but might not have been in, in place um, were there and and um, found by the early museum's collections managers and, and thought to be something important that we should keep. Um, and then some of the smaller, um, what we call historic, Kind of debris that we find. It was um, done during um, larger preservation um, and stabilization projects. So we've had um, some ceilings in the apartments conserved, um, and to do that, we kind of go from above, taking the floorboards from the apartment above off. And we were found that there's like massive piles of, of just kind of dirt, debris, um, rat's nests, kind of these things that get fallen unthought of, and we to conserve those ceilings, we'd have to take that off, and then we would sort through it and find kind of this wealth of just uh, daily record, Um, and so kind of we say that sometimes unintended, these these older um, (laughs) rats and things have kind of left us a record, so we have a lot of um, even paper, newspaper fragments, things like um, library notices or Uh, High holiday tickets that were found that we can kind of really get a sense of these people as well.
0: Can we open some drawers? Can you show me some stuff?
1: Yes, might be. Let's see.
2: So here's kind of some things like daily life. So you have a lot of um, pill pill jars for aspirin or um, headaches, kind of some. Axelax t- tablets, um, we have kind of leftover um, beer cans that were found, whether that was kind of when the building was unoccupied. Um, that is
0: not Coors Light.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> it's kind of these older um, brands. Some of the toys that I was mentioning. So we have found a lot of marbles, um, various size playing cards. Um, We do have the ability on um, some of our exhibits to kind of highlight some of these objects in a a vitrine. So um, on our sweatshop workers tours, you can see the jacks that I mentioned that were found. Um, and some of these other paper objects, and then as well, um, an object that was donated to us by the Levine family, um, Harris Levine, who we their family we talk about was the family owned a garment shop in their apartment, and we have his fabric shears that they the family donated to us. So,
0: I'm detecting a slight fragrance here.
2: Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in some of our other cabinets, we have some leftover. Um, uh, I guess it would be. Perfume bottles, not necessarily perfume bottles, but, uh, it's hard to describe. A lot of the stuff I don't, we don't know a lot about because you might not be able to tell. Um, but kind of, oops, just, um, wash and, um, different things that have water or, um, things left in them that we don't want to disturb.
0: That's like a cotton swab of sorts <laughs> there.
2: Yeah, um, different cotton swabs, um, let's see, uh. Oh, here we are. Ace bandages, too, kind of left over. Um, Eucalyptus, I think this might be the thing that's giving us smell. Yeah.
0: (laughs) um, I have to tell you, it's killing me to see these things in a drawer
1: locked up. Are you hoping to have these see the light of day? the museum doesn't have any immediate plans you know this is very much a historic house museum right and we um in a i think a very basic way do period room installations and guided tours of those spaces um we don't currently have and there are no plans the museum to have a kind of gallery space in which we may be able to sort of show some of these objects as part of rotating exhibits either that we would put together or, or even outside curators or something of that nature. Um, I'd love to see something like that happen uh, perhaps down the line um, and I think what's also really exciting is that we of course live in a very sort of digital age uh, and there may be potential uh, at some point in time for us to be able to feature, show, interpret uh, some of these items in a more kind of digital uh, digital manner, right? And really that's part of what the museum is in the process of thinking through. How do we extend our reach, our impact? How do we reach more uh, visitors who may never have the opportunity to visit the museum here in New York City on the Lower East Side itself? Uh, they may be able to sort of interact in a digital sense with some of these objects, learn about the historic immigrant experience through those things, um, and have uh, I think, uh, um, you know, an impactful experience by, by, by that very nature. I mean, apart from that, you know, for us, I really sort of think about these items as really kind of informing how we understand life as it unfolded at 97 Orchard, or the museum's other historic tenement at 103 Orchard Street. So, you know, I'll often kind of describe a lot of this stuff as like the tritus of everyday life. If you were to open up your kitchen floor uh, and pour over all of the sort of things that have fallen through there, maybe some junk mail, right? And somebody's going to really try to kind of glean, um, you know, sort of details about your about your life um, about, from those things. That's very much how we think about about these these items. And I think they really also have, in some uh, sense, several of them. And this, I know, for me, have really sort of changed the way I think about. Um, the immigrant or migrant experience in some of these buildings, things that have really sort of surprised me over the years, uh, is almost like, wow that's not something i would have expected to see here and it really has sort of shaped my understanding as a historian um, about how immigrants or migrants sort of negotiated the process of adapting to life uh, in there in their new home what's an example of something that surprised you danielle already knows what, <laughs> what <laughs> i'm opening <laughs> she's, she's open it she's opening it cuz yeah this one is my um, my favorite so folks around here are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but um, what Danielle is um, removing from the cabinets here is a can of dirty curry powder. We found this in, um, you know, in some sense, you could think of the floor and ceiling kind of cavity um, as really the sort of archaeological excavation site that we do, right? Uh, and so I believe this was found kind of in, removed from a ceiling but easily could have been taken from from the floor instead uh, and maybe fell through the floor of a kitchen, a hole in a the kitchen. There were often sort of cuts made to incorporate plumbing running water when that was added to the building in 1905, for example. And so for me, right, this is from the 1920s. I had a, um, uh, a graduate student uh, intern who did some research for us uh, now, probably almost over a decade ago. She was interested in kind of um, material culture and really material culture that spoke to different sort of um, immigrant food ways or the sort of change in relationship with food. And so I said, hey, this turkey curry powder can has always struck me as really interesting because why would um, a building that was home predominantly to Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe have a, a can of curry powder in it? And what she found looking through um, various newspapers of the period, this is the 1920s again, early 1920s uh, to be exact, and you know what she found was that there was really like a curry craze, um, not only here in New York but in the United States generally, and there were a lot of folks who were, for the first time, Cooking with this with this seasoning or right? with this spice, so you know to me that speaks not only to um, you know sort of uh, um, recently arrived uh, immigrants in this case Eastern European Jewish immigrants um, trying new things right but really kind of embracing to a certain extent or um, kind of engaging with what are mass cultural consumer trends right and so I think that 's really interesting in the way we think about how immigrants or migrants have kind of negotiated the process of of quote-unquote becoming American, what do you keep, you know, and hold on to from where you've come from, whether that's food ways or otherwise, uh, and what do you take on that's new and adapt and change, right? You know, there's no such thing as quote-unquote American food, right? It's really the um, the amalgam of all these different kinds of food ways uh, that have been brought by folks from all over the world over the last 250 years approximately right and and made something entirely new and this curry powder can for me is part of that story.
0: Danielle what for you has been the most surprising find?
2: Um, I think and this kind of goes into that that food as well there's like some really great preserved items that we've been able to find not beyond just like the nuts and seeds or animal bones but um, like there's a, a bagel piece that we found that's kind of preserved kind of now i would say petrified <laughs> um, not molded not molded um and then it's also a small bag of um dried raspberries too and so it kind of that um the surprise that something so fragile like that can really survive in this building and thrive um and you asked earlier too about um being able to display some of this Um, In the last year, I've worked really closely, too, with the museum's development department to kind of, when they have events for our members in the museum, to really kind of curate a small vitrine theme to that event. And so it's really given me the great opportunity to kind of delve into our records and into our collection and, and find things that... Um, aren't the things you think of typically in these types of situations and really bring out, um, kind of show the breadth and span of of our collections. So Dave has this.
0: There's the bagel. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so you can really see. I mean, maybe some older mold in there, but nothing that's (laughs) um, kind of destroyed it completely.
1: It's kind of fun, though, to think about who might have chomped on that bagel, right? right? Yeah, you know, we have no sense of how this came Um, to be in its current state. This was found another sort of location where we've often found these kind of um, tossed-away elements of sort of everyday life. This, as you said, right, looks like somebody ate most of the bagel and threw the rest of it away. Uh, This was found in... Uh, As I was saying, another site beyond sort of the floors and ceilings is some of the old uh, sort of fireplaces uh, that were sealed up in various ways throughout the building really early on in the building's history, say by the 1870s or 1880s. So uh, how this got in there, we don't know. maybe somebody dropped it down the chimney from the roof (laughs) they were having a bagel one Mm -hmm. one morning or afternoon uh but yeah again i mean really sort of interesting in that it speaks to speaks to um sort of different immigrants sort of food ways what they brought with Mm -hmm. them and how they sort of adapted or changed that uh the the, you know the 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 other one of course is the raspberries that danielle mentioned and i think they're right here too
2: and we have things like um garlic cloves too and then also you can see on here some of the preserved remains of our friends who helped save um, <laughs> some of these items. So, we have some, some mummified um, mice and, and rat skeletons, and really they were the um, unknown <laughs> saviors for us. Kind of right. in our, one of our stabilization projects to re, um, rehabilitate the first floor stairs, um, they kind of rebuilt it. They found rats' nests in there, and so um, one of these great things we also found was a handbill. Um, from a woman named Dora Meltzer, who kind of professor of um, I guess what you would say today's kind of psychic readings, but offered a variety of services and and um, operated out of 97 Orchard Street too. So many of her her handbills were secreted away um, and preserved in that manner.
0: That's pretty fantastic. It looks like there is a corn on the cob there. Is that yeah. what that is? Yeah,
1: and you know I think I mean you know the the um The thing, I think, about the idea that we're looking at these sort of, um, you know, some folks have called this stuff trash, right, which in some ways is appropriate, right? These are things that somebody didn't want, they threw away, or they forgot about. Um, but, you know, not only here, but I think in, in archaeological excavations generally are really sort of an important source of kind of information for historians uh, and individuals who are trying to sort of think about how uh, individuals, particularly sort of poor working class individuals, immigrants or migrants here in our case, uh, who lived in the past, who, were, you know, didn't write down in diaries ordinarily what they were eating on a regular basis or um, record that in letters of any, any kind. Uh, that's very uncommon. Right. And so, you know, a lot of folks, I think, have this sort of presumption that, um, you know, immigrants at the turn of the 20th century, say in 1900, they've come here to uh, New York and they, they are of sort of meager economic means. They can't afford something like raspberries. Right. They can't afford something like fresh fruit. Um, but in fact, uh, it's it's quite the opposite, right? New York is a sort of major commercial entrepot. All of these sorts of things are coming from not only all over the kind of hinterland of the United States, the continental United States, but from all over the world as well. Uh, and You know, certain things that immigrants uh, or migrants might not have had uh, access to in the countries that they came from are actually more available or uh, within their means here. So, you know, a lot of historians, for example, have um, uncovered evidence not only of the ability to eat fresh fruit here, but also meat, right? Meat was something that was reserved for... Um, you know special occasions in the home country here meet even for working class or even poor immigrants or migrants becomes an everyday thing and this these sort of objects help us i think understand um, that on a kind of deeper a deeper level
0: danielle you mentioned games anything in there that was especially interesting people playing the same as we play today
2: (laughs) maybe so
0: i see cards
2: yeah, there were cards. There's one that's kind of a little spooky that I think is fun. I'm looking. Oh, doll so heads. We do have doll heads? Um, many different parts of the dolls as well. Their arms. Um, there's one especially creepy one that has uh, a lot of hair and is dirty and sooty and came out of a fireplace as well. And um, there's one more I'm looking for, but I'm not sure. Oh, here it is.
0: Ooh, a Ouija board. Yeah. Wow. <laughs>
2: So this was also something kind of found and left behind um and something i'd kind of be more interested in and in having the time to do research on, on the time period to see was this something from when families lived here or was it brought in kind of during that time period where the building was unoccupied but the shops still remained in use um some really interesting parts of um that you can see on our tours too is kind of this historic graffiti i guess you would say and so we have a lot of inventory lists written on posts in the in the building itself, and those were kind of lists of pants, shirts, and that's from those um, shopkeepers who were here and kind of just using the abandoned apartments um, for inventory uses and stuff. So, really, kind of all runs the gamut of different things that you would find. These toy boats as well.
0: I would imagine certain things are hard
1: to date, like how do you
0: date a bagel? Right, right.
1: yeah, <laughs> that has no maker's mark, right? You know, I think that's <laughs> that's um, a really good example of something that's virtually impossible um, to date. You know, the museum is not going to do any sort of carbon <laughs> dating uh, or anything of that nature. But yeah, I mean... Um, The way we're able to date any of these things with any degree of accuracy generally comes from, you know, labels or uh, some sort of maker's mark on them. Danielle mentioned um, one of the sort of more interesting finds during a conservation project was a high holidays ticket to services at a nearby synagogue that no longer exists. We could look up that synagogue and know when it was in existence, right? Um, So part of that is, yeah, part of the the sort of the research uh, process. Oftentimes these things are in Yiddish, or Hebrew, or Italian. And so, um, you know, we luckily have often had a lot of those sort of foreign language skills in-house. Sometimes, I think interestingly... Um, particularly for your audience, right, we've crowdsourced some of these things. So, you know, a couple of really interesting examples of that uh, for me of things we found in the building, one of which Danielle mentioned earlier, uh, was a overdue notice from the nearby Seward Park Library. Uh, this was from the 1920s. It was found uh, not under one of the floorboards, but in the mailboxes that are in the sort of entrance, the real sort of vestibule when you walk into 97 Orchard Street. And we could never really sort of make out the handwriting of what the title of the book was, but uh, that went up online. I believe um, it was The Gothamist, uh, the local sort of New York City uh, online um, news site, did a piece and and invited their audience to see if they could make heads or tails of it, and somebody was able to do that. Um, You know, another example is we have one of my other favorite things here is um, kind of, you know, not entirely complete, but um, sort of fragments of what we've referred to generally as kind of a love letter, right? And it was something written by, um, looks like, the the man in this situation to his love interest or paramour who was living at 97 Orchard Street, essentially asking, asking her to um, elope and steal away with him, right? We're going to leave, we're going to, you know, meet me at such and such, right? But, you know, it was fragmentary, difficult to read, and a similar thing. I think it may have been Gothamist in that case, too, or another similar sort of site, uh, and folks out in the kind of, you know, out there. Uh, helped, us, helped us sort of fill in the blanks or at least kind of propose uh, what they thought it said. So it's really an interesting kind of back and forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, we really sort of love that, that engagement. Danielle, what do you have in your hands here?
2: Um, so just kind of some things from um, the, the women population, I would say, of 97 Orchard. Um, because especially on our tours, we, we highlight a lot of the women of our families. Um, but I've, other things that we found are kind of, you can see um, an old uh, lipstick, with the lipstick still there, um, some, some some face powder. We also have, as I mentioned, a lot of different hairpins. Those are easily able to. I'm sure many <laughs> women today know the that um, pain of losing all their their hairbands or bobby pins. Um, but kind of perfume bottles as well, and just kind of really again trying to think about what you would want as a, as a woman um, in this time period, and and kind of making your your. Um, yourself
0: up. Dave, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Danielle, thank you.
2: Thank you. It was great.
0: Dave Favaloro is Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Tenement Museum. Danielle Swanson is the museum's Collections Manager. More info at tenement.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening.